Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm the host of the channel, Samantha Lom, and today we're going to be talking to Jeff Sahadeo about his new book, Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow. So, Jeff, thank you for being here today. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? So thanks, Samantha, for uh, hosting this chat. Uh, I'm a professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. So I've been involved in the field for going on, I guess, 20 years now. Uh, My first book was on Russian colonial society in Tashkent. uh, And then I co-edited a book on everyday life in Central Asia. Uh, Started to become more and more interested in issues of mobility um, in the early 21st century and then projecting it backwards to how things moved in the imperial and Soviet periods and, and found that this is a great fit for the project. So uh, and now I'm moving on to the Caucasus, uh, Georgia specifically, and looking at rivers, so looking at, at mobility in a different dimension. But uh, I'm really excited to have this book out. Um, and thanks to Cornell University Press for publishing it. And thanks again to, to you for hosting this. So you talk about people from the South in this book. Could you define what you mean by the South for our listeners? Yeah, for the purposes of this book, when I talk about the Soviet South, I really mean the the republics in the Caucasus and Central Asia. So the Union Republics, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and the Caucasus, and the so-called stands in uh, Central Asia. So uh, Kazakhs, uh, Uzbek, Turkmen, of course, they were Soviet socialist republics, then uh, Kyrgyz and um, Tajik as well. I have a couple of migrants also who came as a geographically south, but also east from the Russian Far East too, but mainly it's looking at areas which I felt were, uh, I would argue, somewhat post-colonial in nature. So they were colonies in the Tsarist period and and had a different status. I mean, they were union republics and and constituent parts of the Soviet Union, but also had a little bit of a core periphery relationship with uh, Moscow and Leningrad. So what really got you interested in this topic and what does it add to sort of a broader dialogue about Soviet history? Well, I filed this away from the very first time I went to Moscow, which was in 1992, to start learning my Russian language. I just missed the Soviet Union, uh, which I'll always regret. But at the same time, I I was shocked to really find uh, my expectations overturned that I had thought when I went to Leningrad or St. Petersburg, as it was then, and Moscow, 
I see predominantly Russian populations. I grew up in Canada and I would think of Russian hockey players, and ballerinas and babushkas. And walking down the streets of Moscow, especially, I, people were from all over the world. It was an international city and so many people that I had seen in news reports from the Paris Troika period who looked like they were Chechens or Tajiks or uh, Uzbeks, uh, different people walking on the streets, trading. Uh, and I wanted—I just wondered who these people were, why they were there, uh, why they stayed there after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I filed that away um, and also started to think about my own family history. My father uh, was from Trinidad and then and moved to London after the Second World War. And I started to think of a global story of movement of people, for lack of a better word, sort of brown-skinned people who who moved to these capital cities of former uh, colonial empires and thought that this would be a really fascinating story to understand at a very human level uh, what makes people move and then also to step back a little bit and understand what the broader economic and social uh, and political forces are that drive this kind of movement and how it relates not only to the time period that we're talking about, but to the contemporary world. So speaking of the human element, you rely on a lot of oral history for this book. Uh, you know, I do stuff in the 1930s, so yeah, I don't have that option. Everybody's dead. <laughs> um, but what does this approach offer to the topic that maybe traditional documentary research doesn't? And are there any drawbacks with doing oral history? Right. Yeah, my first book was on the, the imperial period of the 1920s, and I, I faced the same thing you did. And I remember walking through uh, Tashkent, uh, the older city, and kind of peeking in the houses that Russian settlers would have lived. I thought, I just love to be able to talk to these people. Because what I found when I was doing my work, and I, I imagine you, were, you find this too, is that you, you tend to get a lot of state-centered perspectives in the archives. It's, it's hard, especially in the imperial period, especially in peripheral histories, to find real voices that are not mediated through um, some kind of government forum or, or elite forum to understand daily experiences. And, and that's what I really wanted to get with this uh, book. And in fact, I hadn't started necessarily thinking of world history as a centerpiece of this project. Um, but I also, when I started to look at uh, trying to find evidence of these people that I saw when I was in Moscow in 1992, it just wasn't there in the archives. I mean, migration isn't really a topic the Soviets talked about in terms of internal migration. It wasn't easy to find evidence in the archives. Um, the press was very quiet on this. They wanted to talk about Moscow and Leningrad as an international city. So I wanted to uncover these people's voices simply, first of all, uh, but then also look at aspects of life that normally don't get picked up in, in written documents. So that would mean uh, everyday life, daily encounters. Uh, what I found was really interesting that I didn't really think too much about was I, I got a sense of emotion in the interviews that people would be able to, to talk and I'd be able to interpret how they were feeling now and then how they felt at the time uh, based on the words they used, on the, even as there were cracks in their voices. Uh, and, and you could control the interview. I could just ask subjects what I wanted and, and get a sense of how to guide the book. Now, like you mentioned, there are a lot of drawbacks to this approach or challenges, maybe I should say, to this approach also. Uh, and it's, it's a relationship between you and your interview subject. And it's a much about them um, and what they want to get out of the interview as it is about what you want to get out of the interview. So I noticed that these subjects were using uh, this opportunity to think through their own life paths and choices through the window of the present. 
Uh, and there's a sense of subjectivity there, obviously, and performance that has to be accounted for. And, and I, I'm sure an interview, and I know I, I did many of the interviews myself. I had research assistants, younger women, either Canadians or from the region who did the interviews, older men. And it's it seemed to me, and, and sometimes the inter the subject themselves would say, Oh, you go tell your professor this. Oh, you would say, and they would they would sort of calibrate their responses based on what they thought we wanted to hear. So I try to be upfront about this in the book that we're relying on impressions of events that that occurred also, of course, long after the fact. Memory is always selective. Um, but it's not unique. These, these problems are not unique to oral histories. I mean, every historical source has a, a viewpoint, has a, it's written after the act. So what I tried to do was triangulate really between these oral histories, between the written sources I could, uh, and try to manage the interview. But I really urge my readers to think about this as a diversity of experiences. And I'm trying to understand people's life stories. Um, this is not... Um, a statistical quantitative study in any way, but it's a one about how how people lived and, and experienced and thought about mobility in the Soviet Union. Did you have any trouble just being a foreigner trying to find people to do interviews? Uh, were they suspicious of talking to you, particularly non-Russians? I know from the Caucasus, people in general have a lot of prejudice against them and you know, I know even here in a primarily Russian region, people think, you know, I'm, I'm a very nice spy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've been here seven years and they still sort of assume that I'm, I've got some sort of ulterior motive. Right, right. It wasn't so much a problem. I mean, the one problem that where the spy issue came up is actually <clears throat> not being able to get material in the Azerbaijani archives. Um, because I thought they might, they thought I might be some kind of Armenian spy or something like that. So I, I didn't, came, wasn't able to get into that, those archives. I, I think it was less, I, I did always work through local friends and colleagues when trying to get these interview subjects. So that mediated a little bit. Um, there was a bit of a challenge. I was finding it very easy to find professionals, you know, people who are students in Moscow and, and people who are colleagues of mine now, um, it was very hard to find traders, people who were on the street, people who were um, <clears throat> who I would sort of have less con less ability to come into contact with. Uh, and once I started to find locals to contact uh, them, they some of them would would not really want to meet with me. Sometimes they were very sort of stilted and formal in their responses, and I think that was that was a bit of a challenge. So I would sometimes have some local people do the interviews for me. Um, sometimes we sort of we'd stop the interview, uh, we'd try and have a drink or something like that, and then come back and do the interview afterwards. So there there were ways to manage it, but uh, yeah, it was it was quite the art to get these interviews down and also to try and. Um, like I said, in this relationship between interviewer and interviewee to try and sort of extract the information you want without guiding the subject too heavily because you want to hear what they want to say also. So what were the main draws for migrants to move to Moscow and Leningrad? I mean, of course, they're the two capital cities, more economic and educational opportunities, but th were there anything else? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it was clear to everyone in, in the Soviet Union that Moscow and Leningrad were at the top of the pyramid the pyramid and that really geographic and social mobility were, were intertwined and even if you plan to return eventually to your home republic if you had a degree from moscow state university if you had worked a couple of years in leningrad or moscow you'd be fine um 
the standard of living, of course, uh, was people felt was much better. Access to goods was better. Access to culture as well. Uh, a lot of these traders who I ended up finding a bit later in the project also found that there were a lot of economic opportunities just because the standard, um, uh, the, the pay was much higher in Moscow. And so things that they would sell, fruit, flowers, for example, they could get five or six times as much, or 10 times as much um, money in Moscow or Leningrad as they could get in um, their home cities. I mean, all of this, none of this was that surprising to me. What the couple of, couple of more surprising responses I found was that a, a few people said that they actually came to Leningrad and Moscow to escape colonialism. These were sort of their terms. And, and when I'd asked them further, they were, say, in Tashkent or, or in uh, Baku, and very resentful of the fact that uh, in these cities, which were technically their, when they were the capital of their own republics, were Russian-dominated, and the Russians there acted like colonizers. Whereas if they went to Leningrad and Moscow, these were, in their mind, Soviet cities, where every citizen had an equal chance, and they really felt that that, they, that turned out to be true. Uh, Leningrad and Moscow. Uh, another reason as well that, that surprised me, a lot of people from smaller villages said it's just the anonymity of the city. They could come to Leningrad and Moscow, they could have their own lives, nobody would be reporting back on them to their families, to local officials. If their parents or their grandparents had some kind of stain on their record um, because of associations even in the 30s or uh, something like that with uh, so-called enemies of people, that would all be erased in Leningrad and Moscow. So there were lots of, uh, and just a sense of adventure for some of these people as well. It's what they saw on TV and, and they wanted to experience a, a new uh, new life. The anonymity thing does not surprise me. I grew up in a small town with <laughs> more cows than people. And, you know, you went to church with your teachers. Uh, so <laughs> I can appreciate, you know, if you do something, they don't immediately like phone your mom or your grandma or, yeah, you know, yeah. they know you're, you know, I found out in high school, one of my best friends was somehow like related to my great grandpa, like her grandma married my great grandpa. And we were like step relatives. It was yeah, the anonymity thing is awesome. Yeah, I am surprised. They, sorry, the way they dressed, you know, they could dress the way they wanted. They could go out with, with boys or girls the way they wanted. And yeah, it was a whole different world for them. I am surprised that they thought they could escape colonialism by basically moving to what had been colonial capitals, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is shocking. Yeah, that was that really that really surprised me. And and um I think again that was the the, uh, the propaganda of the, the friendship of peoples and the idea that Leningrad and Moscow were these centers. And of course, they had reports from Leningrad and Moscow from friends and colleagues saying, "Oh, this is great! You know, we can um, we can do whatever we want in the city." And I think they saw it that way. And somehow, I think maybe behind their own words was the, the fact that in Leningrad and Moscow, it didn't bother them that they would have to speak Russian because it was a Russian capital. Whereas it bothered them in Tashkent or Baku that they had to speak Russian and, and they had to be kind of a city person or something like that to, to advance. So it was also not just one of the things I found, and I sort of suspected this beforehand, it wasn't just about ethnicity, but there was very much an idea of who was an urban person and who wasn't an urban person, who had gone to a good high school, who spoke Russian very well, even if they were ethnically Russian, uh, or not. And if you were in that second category, uh, it was very hard to make a make a life in even one of these Republican capitals. So how much was the Soviet ideology of a brotherhood of peoples real? And how much was it propaganda? 
Well, I mean, this was a really fascinating question. It was one that I, I really put front and center when I was talking to my colleagues, because when I started thinking about this project and, and bringing it up just with friends and trying to formulate my, my questions, they all started to talk about how real the friendship was, which surprised me a little bit because I just saw it in slogans. And of course, this was a slogan. This was a, uh, was a Stalin era creation and Stalin used it quite frequently. But I'd always get invitations from these friends of mine. Say, oh, you come to my, um, family dinner and I'll show you my, I'm, I'm Uzbek and my husband married, uh, or my, my uh, brother married a Chechen and I married a Russian and so on and so forth. And this is a real friendship of peoples and we're all together and, and come and see it. And I, I thought, this is, this is interesting. So I, I put this question in and most people would start off with the fact that this was, and this is a very emotional response for a lot of people, that this friendship was real. I felt it, I experienced it. And they tell me or they tell my, say, if I had younger interviewers, even if they were um, locals, but they never lived to this Soviet Union, I know you can't believe it, but this is how it really was. I, th I think you know, there was some tinge of resentment with that, that, that clearly the friendship of peoples was a Russian creation and Russian was a language of internet, intercultural communication. And you had to speak Russian if you went to a top institute of higher education. But at the same time, uh, it was one of these issues where it was a bit of a challenge because on the one hand, <clears throat> people that I interviewed, I was interviewing, say, 2008, 2010, when there was a lot of violence in Leningrad, St. Petersburg and Moscow at the time against ethnic minorities. And so a lot of their answers were, in the Soviet Union, we had the friendship of peoples, and I always felt safe. Nothing would I could walk on the streets at two in the morning in, in Moscow or Leningrad. I would never feel threatened. And so that for them made the friendship of people real, especially in comparison to what was going on in the present. Uh, but what a lot of them talked about for the friendship of peoples was it was freedom, which again was not a, a word that I used to associate with the Soviet Union. Uh, but part of it was just the size of the country. They could travel without a passport. They were citizens wherever they went. Um, they had the Komsomol. They had organizations that would help them. Uh, the state was kind of there for them to, I mean, they could manipulate it or something like that, but they had that option. Um, and they had this basic level of sustenance, uh, things that they didn't have in the late 2000s. So, you know, I came out and I really let the reader try and make the decision in the book um, how they want to interpret these uh, these oral histories. But I, I really came out thinking people really felt like they were part of a bigger project. Um, now, this is a subsection of people who decided to move to Leningrad and Moscow. So they were upwardly mobile. They were more enthusiastic. So it might not represent the, the entire population, obviously. But for my interview subjects, um, they really held to the friendship of people. And it's part of what they uh, sense. And, and sometimes I'd ask them if they considered themselves a citizen of the Soviet Union or one of their of some of their own republic. And a lot of them would say, you know, I, I, consider, I considered myself a Soviet citizen, and I still am a Soviet citizen. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So it would appear that at least, you know, for a lot of these people, this this was real. Uh, do you think it came because of their contact with the Russian majority and, you know, the very communist ideas in these two capitals? I think that I think that was um, for a lot of them, this sense that they did have overall good relations um, with the Russians that they met. And again, this was a a tricky subject to approach because I was trying to approach it in two ways. I wanted to try to hear more about daily life, but I also wanted to hear about the differences that they felt. I mean, the reason I took these uh, this subset of people, like I said, they came from republics that used to be former colonies, but they also were ethnically, uh, their appearances were, were different, right? Their phenotypes were a little bit, were different. Um, they were clearly non-Russians and, and there was clearly a chance that they would face some kind of, of prejudice. Um, most of them did say that they would have these relationships. They would be welcomed by Russians. Uh, also, for many of them who were students, they were in these multinational dormitories and, and life was very good. And all, they were common citizens and sort of the outsiders in the dormitories, whether it be Africans or, or non-Soviets uh, who were there. So there was this sense of, of unity and, like I said, a sort of a colorblind state uh, at that time as well. Um, but at the same time, they had to manage the fact that they clearly weren't Russians and, and they did this in all kinds of different ways to, to try and satisfy their goals, which were to, to make a living, to make a life in Leningrad and Moscow successfully. And that came with, with challenges that they had to decide whether to overcome or, or to succumb to and leave. So were students from the Soviet republics housed with Russian students? Because I know the foreign kids were not. They're still not. They're kept in separate dorms, the kids from China, the kids from Africa. And I think for a lot of them, they find that very isolating. It's very different from the U.S., where they actually oftentimes give the foreign kid an American buddy to help them integrate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they, were, they were housed in, in the same dormitories for sure. Um, they had roommates of different ethnicities. And I think that was one of the, the real senses of nostalgia I get. And when they talked about the friendship of peoples, they would talk about the dormitories and they would say that every um, national holiday in Uzbek uh, National Day or something. All the Uzbek students would get together and they'd cook an Uzbek dinner in the canteen and, and the little uh, or the little uh, kitchen area, and everybody would come and they every nationality would do this. So um, certainly, the sense of solidarity and ethnic solidarity, even international, even if these students, some like you see the international students who weren't housed there, uh, they would talk about the fact that they were all striving for success in Leningrad and Moscow, and it made them feel part of an um, a multinational uh, city much more than if they were at home. And we talked about sort of escaping colonialism at, at, uh, at home earlier. And at home, there would be the Russians and there would be their ethnicity. But in Moscow and Leningrad, there would be all, every ethnicity uh, and foreigners too. So they felt that they were less um, sort of obviously othered there than they were 
uh, in Leningrad and Moscow. So dormitory life I got, I only got, I think, out of the 30 or 40 people who, who were living in dorms who I interviewed, there's only like one who said, oh, these dorms were, and even then it wasn't sort of ethnic prejudice, all this, like these dorms were hotbeds of sex and drugs and I had to leave. Uh, but otherwise people said the, the human relations in dorms, partly sometimes too, in these, some of these uh, worker dormitories, because sometimes it was a sense of common suffering because they didn't have water often and things like that. But there was there was no sense that I got from them anyways, that there were sort of ethnic boundaries there. So, you know, uh, it seems like that the people are interacting with the Russians and that the migrants are changing, that they're, you know, getting a sense of Soviet citizenship and stuff. Did they also influence the Russians they interact with? Did they change the landscape of Moscow and Leningrad? And did Moscow and Leningrad have serious effects on them, create a lot of change in their life? Did they come back different if they ever did go back? (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting question. I, I didn't um for the, the purposes of just trying to get this book done, didn't end up doing a whole set of separate interviews um with Russians. So it was mainly through word of mouth and through interviewing colleagues that I, I heard about how they experienced um these international uh, multinational presences in in their capitals. And I think uh based on the stories of contact that I got, certainly um, they saw these people from the Caucasus and Central Asia in a positive sense in the ways that it made them feel that they were capital of a superpower. And also the people from these uh, areas uh, who were trading were bringing in fruits and bringing in flowers and things at much cheaper prices than they could get in state stores if they were ever available there. So that was sort of the positive side of how the Russians um, felt about these people. Now, both of those uh, had negative connotations as well. I mean, the Russian, there were many of the people I interviewed who said they would face prejudice from Russians on the streets who were saying, oh, like, we can't go to universities and in Moscow, and yet here they're sending this this uh, Uzbek or this um, Georgian to come, and they get to go to university, and we don't because there was a sort of a, a quota system in the Soviet period where each republic could send a certain number of students to Moscow, each every Moscow and Leningrad university, and that was the source of a lot of resentment from Russians, uh, and Russians also did resent sometimes the fact that they had to go to these um, markets and buy fruit and flowers from sellers from the Caucasus and Central Asia at prices that were higher than the state stores, even if they were still affordable. So there were there were tensions certainly as well within um, that, that that led to uh, different kinds of, of racial racist uh, behavior. But at the same time, I think the fact that uh, Leningrad and Moscow and there was a lot of changes over perestroika, but say up to 1987, 1988, there was a sense that these people were uh, among Russians, that these were Soviet citizens, and it's Moscow and Leningrad as the capital um, had a real duty to to move the society forward and, and to host them. So you don't get a, a many stories outside of the traders before 1989, 1990 of, of real open dangerous prejudice against uh, peoples of non-Russian ethnicities. And how did both the migrants and Russians uh, react to interpersonal relationships, say friendships or even dating or marriage between these two groups? 
Yeah, the friendships were, again, that was one of the very emotional responses I got. And they, they would often relate personal friendships as a microcosm of the friendships of, friendship of people. And I think it was really interesting to hear those stories. There were some stories of isolation, too. I, I had some, uh, even professionals or um, professors who would talk about the fact that when they had dinner parties, they would only invite the Russians um, or they would tell jokes about Georgian, Georgian, Georgian jokes were, were fairly common in the Soviet Union. And there were, there were other jokes about non-Russian ethnicities too. Um, so there were sort of that, there was barriers to friendships as well. Uh, dating was something that my, my subjects, um, particularly my male subjects love to talk about. Uh, <laughs> and, and this was, this was something that, um, I heard these sort of stories even when I was there and even in the post-Soviet period, and it continues on this, this, this myth- mythology that Russian men are horrible lovers, are horrible at treating women well. And my subjects really played on this and started to say that, you know, when we came to Russia, uh, we could meet women. And part of this goes back to our earlier conversation about this anonymity is that these men, um, I remember one guy saying, oh, like in my my village in, uh, the, in Tajikistan, if you brush past a woman's dress, people would talk about it for a week and and I could go and kiss a Russian woman in the park and nobody would even care. Um, so it's that sense that they could have these relationships. But they also used the this dialogue to really make their own place in Leningrad and Moscow. So to say things like, well, um, when we went out for, for drinks, a whole bunch of us, a student group or a professional group, all the Russian men got drunk and they couldn't even take their dates home. And so we took them home. Um, we were, we paid attention to them. We treated them well. And it worked on a couple of different levels. They, they, they told these stories on the one hand to say our culture, Central Asia, Caucasus cultures, uh, respect women more. And, and so women would like us uh, more. But on the other hand, they would also want to make the point that they were they were better citizens in Moscow and Leningrad because they treated women well and they didn't, uh, according to them, they didn't beat up women or they didn't uh, get so drunk that they didn't uh, weren't able to take care of their women. So um, these stories about their their sort of sexual adventures came out of a lot of these interviews. And it's actually interesting, just even some of my uh, younger female uh, colleagues got lots of stories of this, where these older men would like to say, you know, when I was young, I was virile and I could I could have all these women. And, and so it was a little bit of a, um, a fun part of the interview for them, at least. And it, it also loosened things up, I think, in terms of the way that they, they started afterwards responding more with more color to their uh, answers. What about women migrants? Were they allowed the same sexual freedom? Because I know a lot of the um, Caucasian and Central Asian cultures are very protective of their women. They don't really want them out of the house. They don't necessarily want them interacting with you know strangers. And I, I can't really imagine they would be super happy with them having, you know, making out with a Russian man in the park, for example. Yeah, for sure. And it was actually, it was interesting because I, and and my colleagues tried to pose this, we would, had the same sort of question set in a sense, but um, we were a little bit more sensitive about posing it. And, and a few of the Central Asian women I remember specifically talking about the fact that they come to Moscow, they'd see these Russian guys, and their their discourse on this was, oh, I saw this Russian guy. I could have dated him if I wanted to. Um, I had all these opportunities, but I knew that I would have to get married to a, to a local and go home. So I decided not to, not to do it. 
Um, so I didn't get any stories from women about themselves uh, going out and dating Russian men, just saying that they could have done it if they wanted to. And I, I wasn't sure to what extent that was actually the case or to what extent they didn't want to um, divulge that to me or not. Uh, but I did get the sense that for sure that this this mythology was was mainly male-centered. And it was one of the few real points in the interview set where gender became a real category. I had a really difficult time trying to talk to these women more broadly about gendered experiences, what it was like to be a woman in Leningrad and Moscow. And they just didn't really get the question. It was more the sort of Soviet mythology were all Soviet citizens. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. And, and so it was hard to, to get them to think in the categories uh, that I wanted to accept for this one. Now, I assume that there were often children that came out of these friendships. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can think of a, a couple off the top of my head, you know, Victor Soy. I mean, his his father was Korean, but he came from Central Asia uh, from Korean parents mm -hmm. comes to mind. Uh, were there any sort of prejudices against uh, m these mixed children? Did it matter if... You know, one parent was, you know, if dad was Southern and a migrant or did was it more acceptable or less yeah, it, acceptable? It, it really depended on and it was it was interesting to talk to these uh, migrants because to have the to have the relationship, they didn't feel necessarily there were any there were I, there were a couple of times when. I had migrants who said they were walking down the street with a Russian woman and, and somebody would come and say, you know, shame on you for, they'd come to the Russian woman and say, shame on you for dating this guy. That was, that was the, the, the significant minority um, of experiences they had. Generally, there was no problems reported. But when there was a child that came out of the, the marriage, a lot of the talk that I got was it depended often on how the child looked and, and the, the parents actually had to make a decision when this kid was even a baby, because uh, the name what was, became the biggest problem was when there was a kid who had a name that didn't sound right, according to what they looked like. So if, say, a Russian uh, woman and an Uzbek man had a baby, and the baby looked clearly, or would grow up to look clearly Uzbek, but had a name like Misha or Sasha, they would face a lot of scorn for that because they were they were sort of outside the boundaries of what it was. So these parents would have to think about looking at the baby. Well, what's that baby going to look like? What kind of name should I give it? Is there an international name um, that I can give it? And and throughout their lives, these kids would sort of have to navigate the the sense that in the Soviet Union, you were you had the one nationality on your passport and. You sort of they had to decide at some point what that was going to be, uh, and that mixed categories just were not really accepted. So you had to sort of decide which one was going to be dominant or not. And and often the the easiest way to do that was to to get one to to take the one that would match what your physical appearance would look like. So um, there were definitely challenges. And I remember reading actually reading a scholarly article by uh, a couple of Soviet authors in the late 1970s talking about the phenomenon because it was seen in the Soviet Union saw it as progressive ultimately because they were all moving towards a Soviet person. Uh, but they were saying like, we need to have conversations with our population to tell 
parents to tell parents and mixed marriages and children that there are problems that come to come with this and and that there are um challenges and so people uh, aren't left in the dark and they think they're doing this great thing but on on the everyday everyday street life they actually can face some prejudice and their kids will face prejudice also so about names, that's interesting because, you know, in Kirov, we don't have a ton of ethnic minorities, but we do have some. And I had a student, I do believe she is Armenian mm-hmm. um, and her name was Parveen. And they told me that in school, the uh, Russian teachers insisted on calling her something like Polina. They they russified her <laughs> name because they could not pronounce Parveen, which, mm-hmm. you know, as an American, I'm like, Parveen is not a hard name. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> No soft signs, no weird yours. I mean, no huh sound. I'm good with Parveen. Uh, was there a problem with names? Were they encouraged, for example, to russify names, or was that seen as like posing? Or well, and that was and that was a challenge, right? It was seen as it was seen as posing if they didn't look Russian. So um, if they if they clearly didn't look Russian, it was better. Now <clears throat> they would sort of. And of course, the the one advantage I suppose of Russian names is every name has like six or eight patronymics. And what they would do is they take their their Tatar name, um, say like Nalia or something like that, and then find um, the Russian the Russian combination. So Nalia might become one of the patronymics of Nikolai, for example, and they would use sort of the Russian the Russian sort of short form name, and then and then their main name. So there are all kinds of sort of naming strategies uh, that they had. Um, trying, and it was very flexible, just depending on the audience that they were uh, trying to um, interact with. So if it was a professional group uh, that was more so international, they would use a regular name. But if it was, say, they were working in a factory and they were, they were the one non-Russian, they would try to Russify it as they could. So uh, it was really, that was one of the things that came out from these interviews, is that people really um, thought hard about the best way to integrate into these societies and and those kinds of issues didn't really it didn't bother them so much and that they they accepted the fact that they were in Moscow and they were in Leningrad and they they had to make these certain um, I don't know what you call them compromises or sacrifices uh, and they just they just decided to do it in the way that would best allow them to reach whatever career or life goals they wanted to. And what sort of physical space did the uh, migrants carve out? Did they have like, you know, little Baku or like, you know, because in the U.S. you have all of these, you know, immigrant neighborhoods where you would have signage and food. Did they have similar neighborhoods or did they integrate more? Yeah, I was really hoping to find that, actually. And I was really disappointed at the beginning um, because that was my assumption as well. And all the, every migrant I interviewed kept saying, oh, no, there was nothing like that. There was nothing like that. And, and part of it was there were these places um, in the imperial period. There were sort of neighborhoods that were more Georgian-centered. And, and then even in the 1920s, but when you had the massive migration into Moscow in the 1930s when it grew very heavily and then um, again post-war any sense of these migrant areas were were very uh were, were sort of wiped out and of course state housing policy didn't they, they was very random in that sense so um but at the same time there were areas and i'd ask people then if you didn't have this where did you where did you hang out and so 
I had some people would say, well, we couldn't get our own apartments together. So we would all rent dachas together and we, there'd be little dacha areas outside of Moscow where in the summertime, there would be sort of a Tatar area, there would be an Uzbek area. Um, Ethnic restaurants were another area that they went to, either the big state ones, um, like the Ragvi, the Georgian restaurant, or the Uzbekistan, or there were smaller restaurants where people would just say, okay, we're going to hang out here because there's an Uzbek chef or something like that. So restaurants and cafes. Or another one, I talked about student dormitories as well. Um, London's mausoleum was actually another, and Red Square was another area where people said, like, if I ever got really lonely and I wanted to see someone of my own ethnic background, I'd just go to London's mausoleum and just walk up, you know, there's always these massive lines, of course, to see London's body. Uh, I just walk down the line and I'd find somebody and I'd start talking to them. I'd have this, I'd have this sense. Um, and then for better or for worse, the last one is sort of late 70s, early 80s, when there was a large trading um, migration to Moscow to start selling food and flowers. Uh, a lot of ethnic groups had neighborhoods that they carved out and they actually deals with the police that, okay, this Azerbaijani group from this part of Baku would be selling flowers in this neighborhood of Moscow. And so people, Russians kind of knew that, okay, this is a neighborhood where you can get Azerbaijani flowers. Here's a neighborhood where you can get Uzbek melons because of the sellers, right? So there were, there were sort of areas that these people transformed um, as part of their presence in Moscow, for sure, and Leningrad. So we've talked a little bit about some racial and ethnic prejudice. Um, how did this change over time? Because it seems like you say during the Soviet period, there was a little bit of it, but not really a lot. Did this change as the USSR fell apart? Yeah, it did change over time. And and, and again, my it was a really tough question to, to address, partly because it's very difficult in interviews to talk about racism. Like people really... Uh, and I'm not alone in this. I did a lot of background research on how to bring this up properly and, and how other people, other historians have done it. And there's just no easy way to get people to talk about painful memory. So I, I couldn't always say that I had gotten down to the bottom of, of what their experiences were. Um, <clears throat> but it was clear to me that in my interviews, at least, and, and looking at, and also, well, of course, the Soviets were not likely to publicize this, although there was some archival material about uh, some attacks. But there was, in the early 1960s, significant violence against African students in Moscow. Um, and after that, the Soviets really did sort of clamp down on sort of any sort of sense of ethnic, potential ethnic prejudice. But in the late 1970s, early 1980s, like I just mentioned, when these traders start to come in, uh, I did start to hear, I heard from the traders themselves that there were, whenever there were disputes and, and Russians would often say, oh, like you um, overcharged me or you're, you've got like a, your, your weight or your weights and measures are off because you're trying to cheat me. Uh, and that this sometimes would result in fistfights and attacks and the Russian police would come and they'd always take the side of the ethnic Russians. Um, so there were traders who would say that I, I was in the late, 19, late 70s, early 80s, uh, the subject of these racist attacks. But in terms of more broad um, ethnic prejudice, certainly by the late perestroika period, I'd say sort of 88, 89, when things started to get worse economically, so I suppose it's not the most surprising in that sense, that uh, a lot of my interview subjects said that the streets definitely got more... Um, dangerous for them. And, and certainly in the uh, written sources that they get, one of the things that starts to happen at this time 
is you're getting uh, with Glasnost on, on television, in the media, you're starting to get a lot of more openly nationalist, Russian nationalist calls that turn towards racism. And the first the first sign of this is actually anti-Semitism, which becomes much more prominent in the early perestroika period. But once it becomes clear that in the Soviet census, uh, the last Soviet census they took in 89 was going to show that Russians were barely clinging to a majority and Central Asian Caucasus peoples were much more um, populous, that we start to get a lot of uh, racist screeds against these populations and the fact that the Russian nation is uh, being harmed, is at threat. A lot of stories that these people were being uh, Caucasus and Central Asian people would bring AIDS with them, which was a big worry in, in Moscow and Leningrad at the time. Uh, so at that point in 1990, a lot of it was one of the calculations where a lot of people went home. Um, also, a lot of people said they would have these sort of protection groups. They wouldn't go out at night and when they out during the day, um, they would go there at the same time. So uh, it was interesting when, when I talked to people about turning points in their lives. It wasn't 1991 and the actual collapse of the Soviet Union. So the beginning of 1990, when Glasnost and Perestroika it really became clear that this was no solution for, for Russia and that uh, that life was really hard and, and that all of a sudden they were no longer welcome parts of Leningrad and Moscow. I mean, I've heard really horrible things from ethnic Russians, too, about uh, the 1990s. You know, particularly young men said it was not uncommon to be jumped on the street on their way home. I knew several people that carried knives. Uh, you were seriously injured. Um, I mean, I think it, it was dangerous for a lot of people. How did migrant communities react to the breakup of the USSR? Were they happy? Were they devastated? And how did it affect them now that they were, you know, now in Russia, which was no longer attacked? to their country. <laughs> uh, migrants had to make this this very uh, careful calculation as to in the 1990s when things were chaotic all across the Soviet Union. Was it better to be um, at home with families where their survival strategy would work better? Uh, for example, if you were in Tajikistan and your country was uh, surrounded by civil war, you might want to stay in Moscow. Others would come back because, of course, food was much more expensive. Uh, there was just a sense of you had people like Zhirinovsky running around, these sort of open racists, and uh, they were really still here. still here. Yeah, but I mean, I, really, in what happened is you had in the, in the sort of mid nineteen nineties a very, very much a um, a gap uh, in migration, and then in the two thousands when the Russian economy started to to take off after the ninety eight crash, primarily as oil prices started to go up, that's when there's this entirely new wave of migration uh, that started. And it was actually really interesting because I had found, um, now when I was in Moscow in the early 2000s, I saw these traders and I thought, okay, these are, I can go interview these people. And I tried and I had colleagues of mine who were Russians in Moscow, who when I was in Canada said, could you just sort of try and do a few interviews for me? But all these people were young, right? They were 20 and 30 and they weren't the sort of, the, the people who were there in the Soviet period it was a new generation. Uh, so we couldn't use them as interview subjects. But uh, obviously, there, there are far more, actually. There's a, well over a million 
people from the, the former Soviet South in Moscow and Leningrad each these days. Uh, so uh, the numbers are even higher. And I, I would argue it's part of the same phenomenon. It's this network, uh, this networks that built up over the Soviet period and this, this former imperial system really that came from the Tsarist empire when Leningrad, um, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, Petrograd uh, were uh, the centers of, and uh, Moscow were the centers of the world. Uh, They're parts of the world for these people. So uh, let's talk about sort of the legal aspects of this, because, you know, Russia's always been really, really keen on controlling migration, even the czarist period. And in theory, mm-hmm. the USSR and modern Russia have very strict regulations monitoring uh, migrants and even Russian citizens who move from city to city. You're supposed to re-register and stuff. Right. So were these propositions? Pisky requirements usually observed or strictly enforced, or were they ignored? Did that change over time? Yeah, it was definitely a sporadic thing, and it was really interesting to interview these these migrants and ask them because this was always a question that I asked: like, did you have one? Did you felt that you needed one? Um, and I got responses that were across the board. There were some people who said, oh, "I just I just moved to Moscow to make more money, and nobody ever asked me for one, so I didn't need one." Um, there are other people who who as soon as they got to Moscow, first thing they do is they try and see who they could pay off to get one. Who they try they try and get one that was uh, they try and forge one. They try and do different tricks uh, to have of Propecia because they felt that if they didn't have it, they would be asked for it. Uh, others who, of course, if you were a student, you got one. Um, and also if you were a former uh, demobilized soldier, uh, you could get one as well. So um, there were campaigns that the that were going on, like, for example, just before the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, uh, there was an effort to really so-called clean the streets. And a lot of these Southern traders got caught up in this and they were um, what was called taken to the 101st kilometer. So that was outside the 100 kilometer zone where you needed a propiski. So um, there there was a sporadic nature of this enforcement. But I think more than that, it was really the, the nature of the the knowledge that there was technically, legally, you needed a propiska. So the people who came to Moscow often were the ones who didn't care about that. Um, so if they thought, like, forget it, I'm just going to move to Moscow and I'm, I'm going to make my way. And those people actually succeeded because Moscow's populations and Leningrad's populations, because of these propiski regulations, were getting older, were getting... Um, so grayer, they weren't able to to really satisfy these labor requirements. So it was a space for them. Whereas there were some people from even nearby Russian villages who said, oh, I, I'm sure I'm going to need a propiska, so I'm not going to come. So in fact, the the irony of the, the propiski regime was probably uh, a lessened migration from nearby areas, but um, didn't lessen it as much from faraway areas where the economic situation differentials were better or greater and people were willing to take more of a risk to come to Moscow, knowing that at worst you would get kicked out again. But it's not like you would you would lose citizenship. Um, and it wasn't like today where the, the threat of violence was, was quite the same. Um, there were... Um, Police often who would who would take bribes or who would insist on bribes, uh, for sure. Especially street traders would have to often pay off police. Uh, but for a lot, for many of them, the risk was worth taking. So my last question is: How does your work fit into current conversations on migrants in the U.S., the EU, and even in Russia? Yeah, I think the more I looked at it, I I, I really thought of this project at the beginning as a Soviet project, but at the same time. 
this really is one that speaks to a, a period in time that is based on the same phenomenon that, that's even greater today, and that is this migration from former imperial peripheries to former imperial cores, whether that be migration to, to London or to Paris, especially the 20th century, to the United States now from Latin America. Um, it's all a system where from the the end of sort of more formal imperialism and colonialism, where these colonies were just sort of forgotten about, and and really the economic relationship between peripheries were who were supplying raw resources with less uh, opportunities for social mobility versus these cores, uh, they continue. Uh, to persist. And in fact, it's it's worsening over time. And we can see that with the massive migration now, with everything that Trump is trying to do, right? These people are still coming um, from Central America, from from Mexico, and and the migration to Moscow and Leningrad, even though these are these are separate countries, uh, the um, numbers are much, much higher. And what I was just talking about in terms of the last question, you were talking about sort of these legal um, requirements. And I would argue, and it's not just me. I mean, this is sort of more of a global um, the knowledge among these uh, among many scholars of migration is that this is all part of it's a deliberate strategy, and that these these countries, these wealthier countries or these wealthier cities like Leningrad and Moscow, they need this disposable labor force. They need young people to come to bring energy um, to work for low wages to satisfy a lot of the needs in the service sector uh, with the occasional sort of skilled migrants as well. They need the sort of global talent uh, also. But the fact that these people can be uh, ejected if need be, if the economy turns or if, if social prejudices get too high and they have an unofficial status, that's all good from the state's perspective. So it's sort of a double game that the states are playing um, and the migrants are trying to sort of fit themselves within that game. I think that's a global story. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking to us. I think we've probably taken up enough of your time. Um, so thank you for being on our program. Yeah, and, and thank you very much for hosting, Samantha. It was great to have this conversation. And uh, I look forward to um, listening to how other people react to to the book. And really, it's a, it's a journey that I want to take people through and really have them think for themselves about how this how these life experiences uh, tell us things about the Soviet Union as a whole and the people who lived in it.